podcast has bad words. <laughs> All right, here we are with Eric Weinstein from The Portal. What a wonderful podcast you have, he Eric. Just, he just raised a very philosophical question. Mm. He did. Yeah. What if joy doesn't bring you joy? Yeah. And so <laughs> we often use these terms, uh, what I call the satisfaction continuum. Uh, we, we, we use these, churn, ter, these terms interchangeably, and if we're doing it in everyday discourse, I think it's totally fine. But I think there is a, a substantial difference between pleasure, happiness, contentment, and joy. And I'm trying to write, write about this in our new book, which is called Love People Use Things, which is like the sort of phrase we, we end every, every episode with and our documentary with. Um, and it's sort of the ethos of, of minimalism. Uh, love people use things. The opposite never works. Um, and and what I'm trying to do is joy. I think we I think pleasure, if we're looking at the satisfaction continuum, is often the enemy of joy. Um, so we were talking about ephemerality earlier, right? You have a mischievous look on your face. You're going to go in on me. I have rest, resting <laughs> mischievous face. He's got rest, resting disagreement face. <laughs> <laughs> so so here, here's the thing. I, um, I, I, the example that I use in the book is you know, eating a piece of chocolate or a birthday cake. Eating a piece of birthday cake will bring so much you pleasure. pleasure oh right? my God, so much pleasure. A, a very <laughs> ephemeral pleasure. And so we well, go back for a second bite and a third bite and there's diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. And and, and uh, I think that often gets in the way of what real joy is. We could talk about these four different things. I think happiness, if we're using that same metaphor, happiness is sort of like a, a well-balanced, healthy meal. You feel good. You enjoy the taste of it. You may get some pleasure from it. But happiness is is also making the, the sort of right decision in the moment also rather ephemeral and I, that's why i think neither pleasure nor happiness are are noble goals i think they are a beautiful byproduct of living a a congruent or a meaningful life uh contentment is sort of the the next layer of that and contentment is is um having a, a healthy lifestyle or he healthy dietary, like, instead of just, well, yeah, I'm on a diet for this, these six weeks. No, like having you know, a, a consistent, well-balanced, healthy diet would be my hmm. version of contentment. And then finally, joy, I think, always involves other people, uh, either directly or indirectly. It, it involves serving the greater good. And, and I think about my most joyous experiences in life, they they always involve someone else, mm. uh, either directly or indirectly, and almost always directly. And it could be something as simple as like, Ryan and I joined a dodgeball league in West Hollywood last year, and like, there's joyous moments in that. But if I went to that same gym and started like just throwing a dodgeball at a wall, I, I don't think I would experience the same level of joy. Sure. Um, and then uh, it could be anything, a book club, a, a meetup group, Sexual intercourse is much better with someone else there, <laughs> usually. Um, and, and so uh, I think that'd be the more crude example, right? Like masturbation would be pleasure, and then there's this whole continuum where you eventually reach joy by also bringing joy to yeah. someone else. What do you think? So those four words, synonymous, what, what, I mean, do you think that they're interchangeable, interchangeable, Eric? Or do you kind of agree with along the lines of Josh of... Uh, they each have their own specific different kind of states or meanings. Um, 
So I'm a huge fan of the idea of shading the concept of welfare uh, into all of these. I, I think that the reason our language maintains so many different words for, for related concepts is the need to pull these things apart. So I, I quite agree with that. Precision. Yeah. I totally disagree with what you're saying about how I would map joy. Mm -hmm. I've had some of my most joyous moments doing math by myself. Mm. Um, yeah, and we're just using the words differently then. It, it, that becomes we don't a, know. a semantic. We don't thing. know. A lot yeah. of people never experience, um, like the, the extent to which we enjoy ourselves, our own mind. Um, I mean, even the point that you made about uh, sexual pleasure, mm -hmm. uh, you said it in a really funny way. And I, I was like really proud of myself that I did not pile on and jump in. But uh, <laughs> I, I think that... Um, a lot of people experience great sexual pleasure uh, autoerotically. And I don't mm. think that um, I'll be, just to be honest, uh, yeah. coming back at it, I think that there's too much value judgment in what you said. Mm. I think that we know something about um, fulfillment, joy, pleasure, and, and, and welfare, which is that we our bodies work on approximate ultimate correspondence what right that mean? so that your body um you share a lot of problems with a goose let's say mm -hmm. goose has to eat mm -hmm. goose needs to reproduce goose may need to bond um and doesn't have any language for all of these things and so what happens is that all of those ultimate things like hunger is the proximate for the need for nourishment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thirst is the proximate for the need to address dehydration issues. Mm -hmm. Ar arousal is the proximate for the need. Um, to, did I already say that one? No. no. Yeah, for reproduction. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, okay, so that's what our body gives us. It gives us a bunch of feelings right. that are supposed to be tied to purpose. And what I do hear you saying is that the extent to which these things are meaningfully tied mm -hmm. has something to do with the sort of level. Let's, let's use fulfillment as kind of the value laden highest form of all of this welfare that if you die mm. a fulfilled human being, it probably speaks to something that you've accomplished in your life. Right. Okay. But, uh, I like to have a few drinks. I like to go dancing in a meaningless fashion. You got to live a little. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I don't want to run down all of the cheap forms of happiness that I've experienced because mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed them. Yeah, it's not an indictment on pleasure. It's only an indictment on pleasure when it gets in the way of... Which it does. Yeah. Or pursuing only pleasure. Well, right. So this, yeah. so this is... This the he hedonist or the, the hedonic treadmill sort of thing. Yeah. And so th there's certain... like. Uh, I'll be honest, I had the greatest drug experience of all time getting my appendix out. Um, I don't know what they gave me. I think they called it liquid Valium. And, you know, it was a kind of a serious medical situation. They said, okay, we're, um, we're going to do the procedure. Do you want to be under general or do you want to try to be awake for it? I said, oh, I want to try to be awake. Oh my so God. they gave... That's oh, because awesome. oh, it's so... Look, it's my goddamn appendix. Nobody's going to take it out of my body if I can't... If I can have the opportunity to watch, of course I want to make sure that. <laughs> I did an Oscar earlier this year, choice. and I'm like, please put me, put me out. All right. Well, yeah. this wasn't a call to me. Anyway, <laughs> when they gave me this thing, I said, "This is the greatest experience I've ever had." 
And I've heard people talk about heroin this way, right? So if you if you know anyone who's who's tried heroin, even if they're really negative about their experience and they've been through hell, they will often say that the first time they experienced this, nothing has ever felt so good. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that feels like, but I can tell you there are very dangerous levels of happiness that are available to you biochemically. Yeah, yeah and I think that's yeah. what I was trying to illustrate. And Ryan can talk to this because, um, in fact, we, we're writing about that in, in the new book. The... Um, uh, we're from the overdose capital of America, Dayton, Ohio, mm. and yeah. Um, yeah, you can easily take some pills, yeah, and feel like you won the lottery, and just be sitting on your couch doing nothing, yeah. And yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I I do. I love how we're trying to differentiate these terms, though, because if we just view you know pleasure as the same as happiness, as the same as joy, as the same as contentment, it starts to get muddled. And I think what we're doing with this book and what you're trying to do, Josh, is you're trying to help people assign these words a definition. I don't think that there is a, and Josh and I never ever sit here and say, this is the way, and this is exactly how everyone should do it. Here's the prescription. Right. What we do is we say, hey, here's how we approach it. Feel free to take some ingredients. My favorite compliment I get is when people come up to me and they're like, dude, I listen to your podcast. I'm addicted to your podcast. The guy was saying that on the one of the questions. Um, you're welcome, or I'm sorry. I don't know which to say there, but they're like, I love about half of what you say. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, that's awesome. Well, that, that's a huge. It's like being a 500 hitter in baseball. Right, exactly. Right, <laughs> right exactly. That never happens. I've right. never looked at it that way, but you're right. It is, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, like, I, I never get anywhere close to that. <laughs> but um, what I would say is that there's an, a helpful concept. Um, which I learned from a colleague called technical debt. When you're programming and you start taking some shortcuts, mm. you'll have to pay back the technical debt that you're taking on later. Yes. So like if you unwrap a present and you just drop all of the wrapping paper onto the floor, it's an analogous concept of, mm. okay, well that's gonna have to get dealt with. And so right. I look at all of the stuff as technical debt. Well, when you're blissed out on your couch, you're going into some kind of technical debt. Maybe you're picking up an addiction. Mm. Maybe the idea is you're changing your motivational structure. And the problem isn't the pleasure. The problem is that there's an account that just picked up giant debits. Mm. And yes, you're getting a lot, but you're also giving up a lot. And it's the disguising of that. And I think that we have a language, um, you know, Economic theory basically has one overarching concept called utility. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a weird way, that's actually the right way to model human fulfillment, happiness, pleasure, joy, et cetera. But it's not really how our bodies work. Our bodies keep track of all of these different flavors of, um, of positivity. Mm-hmm. And I think what you know what you're doing is is that you're pointing out that these very naive things like does it bring you joy? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very brutal, crude tool. It may be helpful mm-hmm. sorting through your life, but on the other hand, um, whenever somebody tells me that the point of life is to be happy, I want to clutch my head in pain. Yeah, yeah. Totally yep. You totally know, agree. because there's so many ways to make yourself happy that are evil or will be self-destructive and that's not the point of life. The point of life is some kind of meaningful, fulfilling struggle 
that balances and, and just to be critical of you minimalists, <laughs> it's not all about what you do for others and you know, that's beautiful, but yeah. it doesn't match our experiences. Some mm-hmm. of this stuff is just about us, man. Absolutely. And some of it is just about the giving for others. And some of it is in isolation. Some of it is with other people. I can tell you that if I was on a deserted island with like uh, a beautiful grand piano perfectly in tune, it's not like I wouldn't play it because there's nobody else around. I would just play for me. I'm positive of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I do the same thing Same thing sure. with guitar um, where I don't ever play for anyone else except for maybe my daughter. So is that a musical form of autoeroticism? Uh, Yes. Yeah, is it? it is. Yeah. It, except I I would say that that is not where, again, we're using these terms differently and I'm simply defining joy differently from how you would uh, define it. To me, it's a form of contentment um, where where I do feel like extreme focus and in the moment. I'm just using using the word differently. I agree with you that it's not only about serving others. In fact, I think we often get caught up in that trap where we go from I'm only serving myself to the pendulum swinging all the way to the other side and, and saying, well, now it's just about going and helping everyone else. Right. No, there, there, there has to be a balance. And I can tell you that if I went to go live on that island, could I find a way to be contented there? Yeah. Uh, would it be as meaningful or as joyous as if I had all the people around me that I do now? No, I don't think so. Probably not. It's funny. I've heard the same exact, or I've heard the uh, yeah same exact opposite criticism of people saying, uh, you know, the one thing I don't like about minimalism, it's all about yourself. It's not about other people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's just interesting how, I mean, I think this just speaks to how so many things, even with the definitions that Josh was talking about earlier, it's so... Uh, perspectible on uh, you know how you you know what does what do you mean by it (laughs) you know like like that's well I think part of the problem is that we're giving when you start talking about things that have been useful to you and people find it interesting Mm -hmm. you have to keep in mind that people are very different stages of their life and so you, you may have two listeners one of whom needs to focus on her own pleasure she's giving way too much and it's self-destructive, and she's mm-hmm. got to cut that out and take care of herself and not focus on her family and her neighbors and her community to the same extent. Mm-hmm. you got some other person who's got some giant hole in their life they can't locate because they've been taking care of their business enterprise, their status in society, and that person doesn't understand that the hole in their heart is all about um, – doing something meaningful for other people and that there are certain itches on the center of your back that you're not intended to be able to scratch, yeah. right? And yeah. so how do you give advice to both of those people at the same time? Mm. Um, because the advice is opposite. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. It's highly individual. Now, uh, in the hallway, uh, Eric, you're asking me, and I, I misunderstood the question. You, you said, but there, how many minimalists are there? And I, you, you were just asking like, is it just you and Ryan? And I'm like, what well, does he mean? Like, 
like going back to like Epictetus and Seneca and, and Jesus and the Buddha. I'm like, I don't know. I think there's 613 total. Um, so we're going to get a posse together. That's right. <laughs> yeah. We're going to minimize it. the world. We'll have to get down to Dunbar's number though. So we're going to have to exclude someone. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I will often say, you know, it goes back to Jesus and, and, and the Stoics and, and, and also back to Tyler Durden and Fight Club turned mm-hmm. 20 this year. Oh, wow. And so I have a great article. We do this segment called More About Less, Eric, and we read something as sort of a jump off point for discussion. I love McSweeney's. Are you a fan of McSweeney's? Are you, are you familiar with their, their website? Say it again. McSweeney's. McSweeney's. I heard something different. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, Dave, Dave Eggers. You, I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with Dave Eggers' uh, heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius, is his memoir. He's written a bunch of really good books. But um, he started this sort of publishing house, online website. It's sort of like the New Yorker meets the onion is the best way I can describe McSweeney's. Hmm. And, and so uh, this article is called The 20th Anniversary Fight Club, Rules 9 through 16. Thought it was a good place for us to, to start the this best segment rules. here. <laughs> Gentlemen, welcome back. It's been 20 years since we last gathered in the dark, dank basement of Lou's Tavern to pummel each other into glorious, sweat-drenched, and blood-stained pulps. 20 years since we found redemption in destruction, salvation in annihilation. 20 long years since my perfectly chiseled torso first adorned the walls of countless college dorms across America. So... Um, I often think of you know, Fight Club as uh, as almost like the beginning of the online. It came out in 99, the beginning of the online sort of minimalist lifestyle movement. So we talk about minimalism. There are all these sort of uh, different variants, uh, whether it's minimalist literature of Brad Easton Ellis and Carver. It's a very and, large umbrella. In yeah. Fact, often Josh and I say minimalism is really like a Trojan horse for us to talk about whatever we want to talk about. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and the only reason we're the minimalists is yeah. because the domain was available for $7 when we started this whole thing. <laughs> Fist bump for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I really think of you know, the, the quotes from Chuck Polinick's <clears throat> book, uh, Fight Club, a lot of the what, what's going on there, the anti-consumerism rants, now obviously it manifested in a a rather violent sort of um, uh, overthrowing of the government, which I don't think we're necessarily advocating. But uh, I do find it interesting as, unless a, as a it, fictional unless you're tale. Passionate about it and it adds value to your life. Yeah, maybe not. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, uh, what taking down the man brings me joy. <laughs> All right. Now I wish I could say I'm happy to see you, but I'm not. Most of you are softer, weaker, more laden with children. You're tangled up with mortgages and monthly subscription services and idiot-proof single-meal recipe ingredients shipped directly to your doors. You even, despite my best, most explicit efforts, still shop at Ikea. (laughs) Well, that ends again tonight. Irvin here has granted us access to Lou's basement. Thanks, Irv. And I've come up with a few updates to bring us into the new millennium. I trust you still remember the original eight rules, so let's talk new material. The ninth rule of Fight Club is you do not post about Fight Club. (laughs) It's amazing how much our world has changed in 20 years, right? Uh, I mean, the internet was around 20 years ago, but it wasn't around the way that it's around today. Podcasting didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. Community didn't exist in a way that it exists now. Mm. Um, So the ninth rule of Fight Club is you do not post about Fight Club. The tenth rule of Fight Club is 
You do not po- <laughs> Dude, this is genius. <laughs> you do not fi- post about Fight Club. You do not like, follow, or double tap posts about Fight Club. <laughs> you do not share them. You do not tag them. You do not discuss Fight Club on Facebook, Twitter, Insta, Tumblr, Snapchat, TikTok, Slack, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, Google Care... <laughs> Google Care Bear Friend Zone <laughs> or whatever other messed up time suck is next in this impossibly confusing trend machine you call the internet. I may be a silver screen Adonis who has permission to refract his per- refract his perfect image all over social media, but if I see any of you quote pin a mirror selfie tagged, I built this, so help me God, I will haunt you down and make you confront your deepest existential fears. <laughs> On that note, the 11th rule of Fight Club. No cell phones during a fight. Don't be smart with me. I don't mean silence your phones. I mean turn them all the way off. Frankly, I don't get it. The last time I was here, I had to dial a stationary rotary phone to place a call. Now you're all reachable any place, any time. You type out entire treaties on pocket computers while standing in line for macadamia milk lattes. You only use pay phones for public urination. <laughs> Oh my god, dude! I really, I want to see Fight Club remade to reflect the, <laughs> the this time that we live in. Well, the joke is on you, fellows. <laughs> Everywhere should be a place for public urination, not just payphones. <laughs> How do we? It's easy for us to, Eric. It's easy for us to just bash social media, but there's so much to recommend it as well. We connected because of Twitter. Yeah. But also, scrolling is the new smoking. And mm. I mean that quite literally. Like, uh, when I... Um, you can see sort of examples anywhere you go now where it's it's literally laughable for me where I... And it's laughable because also I participate in it. I'm in line across the street at the coffee shop and everyone in this 10-person deep lying is on, on their phone, including me. And... I don't know if that's inherently a bad thing, but it seems bad to me. <laughs> um, well, it isn't inherently a bad thing. I mean, I just, I mean, if I just think about like my morning, this guy, um, I was kind of in a bad mood coming over here a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this guy uh, puts up a tweet that says, uh, can everyone please just stop liking Eric Weinstein's tweets. <laughs> and so I'm like, I get, oh, it's on. <laughs> You're going to come at me? So, you know, so I'm in my like, I'm in my, uh, you know, road rage head. And as I always do, I've put in this little circuit, which is like, check yourself. That's your instinctual self making a bad decision. Mm. So then I quote tweeted this guy's tweet. And I just said, can we, can we make reverse trolling into a thing? And, um, you know, this is a guy who needs some love and positivity. Can everybody like this guy's tweet? So he now, I think he has over a thousand tweets. It is the most positive trolling thing that has ever happened. If you look at the guy, you know, have a great day. You sound like a really interesting programmer. You know, it'd be great to talk about, uh, you know, uh, Haskell with you or something like, you know, programming languages. So I think you have to appreciate all of the wondrous things that even a supposed cesspool like Twitter can do for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you are probably capable of getting wealthy if you can only figure out what to tweet. 
to get people's attention. Um, I've watched people's lives change almost overnight uh, because somehow they were able to contact some something in the culture, some person that turned their lives around. So I think social media doesn't get uh, enough positivity. Right. Mm. That said, we are dancing with the devil. Nobody's mm. ever dealt with something that looks like this before. And the idea that we haven't, I mean, my guess is we will have to change our foundational documents for our country, either by amendment or some other process, because of the power that takes place when communication can be made frictionless. Right, because without friction, you, you also lose traction. No, because without friction, you have a, a world in which I, you know, do, do I know whether something I release might not create a riot in, uh, in Pakistan? I don't know, mm. right? Like we are connected up in some way that human, humanity has no experience with at all. And what's terrifying about that is you're also, you use Twitter very thoughtfully as well. Do I? Yeah. Oh, I have a question here from Scott. He says, can you ask Eric if it's possible for him to dumb down his tweets? Asking for a friend. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, uh, but no, you, you. Um, I have a lot of other people who say like, is there anything dumber than Eric Weinstein's <laughs> tweets? <laughs> um, so I don't know if I can go any lower. This is too well, funny. Well, I, I find it, I find it fascinating that um you know, twitter has become the medium through which you communicate i mean obviously your podcast as well but twitter has become the medium through which you communicate um and i think you communicate very effectively the reverse trolling thing i mean by definition it's not trolling because it's positive ryan and i call it comp assaults yeah, yeah so the compliments <clears throat> plus insult like it's not really an insult but it's uh, i'm totally stealing that by the way what, the, the, reverse the trolling yeah the next time someone tweets yeah. me they're like these guys, I mean, whatever the trolling is, I'm just going to retweet it. I'm going to be like, I I'm not saying this, this facetiously. Please send this person a lot of love because they're not feeling loved right now. I love that, man. I'm going to yeah, start but, doing But you can't come at it from a superiority. I mean, like I put in my tweet, if I if I get it correctly, something like, hey, I hope you're there for me one day when I need it. Mm. Right? Mm. Like it was totally sincere. It wasn't. And by the way, I'm not backing off the trolling energy mm. at all. Yeah. What do you mean I was backing off the trolling? Because I was pissed. Right. 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 Cool. I was, yeah. I was pissed. Somebody engaged my monkey, my inner monkey, mm -hmm. uh -huh. and my inner monkey said, "Okay, you're stealing my banana. You're taking my territory. You're peeing on my tree. Mm -hmm. right. You know, oh, it's on." Right. Now and then, I'm coming at that with that energy. Mm. Just like I am going to convert this into something different. It, I, but that was an intentional decision. Whereas the knee jerk reaction is, "Fuck this guy. I I'm going." I, I'm going to unleash you know all of my followers on you, or just unleash your brain on him, and all of a sudden, um, I don't know. Whenever that happens to me, and I, I respond to a troll, I never feel good about it. But I could see the way that you responded. I actually, yeah, in I, a sincere I way, fight. I would look. I, I, I don't like all of us playing the role of pretend Jesus. Mm -hmm. I'm not meant to be Jesus, right? right? And nobody is. Yeah. And so I will fight somebody on Twitter <laughs> because that person is somebody who deserves it. And I think they're strong enough to withstand it if I have to. Sure. But I think what's what's negative for me is that we're not metacognitive enough to recognize we've been engaged viscerally, mm -hmm. limbically. So I was thinking about a time when 
Not too long ago, we had to get off at an exit on the freeway. And there was a huge line of cars trying to get off at that exit. And I went up to the front of that line of cars. And then I, you know, acted desperate, like, oh, you have to let me in. Yeah. And it was because we had a really serious time issue. Uh -huh. And so, you know, I got like kudos in the car because of the time pressure. Like, thank God we, we would have been, been late. It would have been a disaster. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not three hours later, we're on the freeway and somebody cuts in front of us. Did you see what that guy did? Like, mm. there's no presence of mind. Right. Yeah. That, that's us. Well, that's in a way, it's like it's like momentary solipsism, right? Like the the the, the universe revolves around me and, and my desires, and it becomes difficult for me then to see this other this other perspective, even though that same perspective may have happened to me, or that same incident may have happened to me just a few hours earlier. Well, I just, and then I'm, I'm enraged by my own behavior. I'm engineered for hypocrisy, just like you are, whoever you are listening to me yeah. right now. And when, we, we need to reserve challenges of hypocrisy um, for more significant things. The, the blinding of ourselves to our own actions and how we feel about what, uh, others when they undertake those actions. That's, that's normal. What you need to do is to try to get underneath that, behind it, see the comedy in it, um, because it is hysterically funny. So the goal is not to live a completely unhypocritical life. Well, this is the thing. I embrace my hypocrisy, not because I'm trying to get out of it completely, but because um, I, I just don't think I can remove hypocrisy from my life. I haven't met the person who can, and what I'm looking for is, okay, what is an allowable amount? What is a functional level of hypocrisy? What's an mm -hmm. adaptive level of hypocrisy where you're not beating yourself up every four seconds because of your own self inconsistency. And you're not just letting, giving yourself a permanent free pass either. Yeah. And so, um, I don't hear enough people talking about that. You know, I think like, yeah. uh, you know, my friend Sam Harris tries to be as consistent as he possibly can. Right. And there's no way he's going to succeed. I think it's adorable. Yeah. Um, I think that he's 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 led a pretty good life because he's struggling to do that, but he's not aware that he can't complete his mission at the level that I would want him to be How aware. So? Yeah. What, 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 you say that because I mean I followed Sam really closely. He was in our, our documentary. He's been on yeah. the podcast a few times. Um, the the I, I agree with you that um, he seems like aggressively congruent. In a way, he's he's doing a pretty good job. But for example, um, when I started my podcast, I just decided I'm going to be clear that the portal is a commercial undertaking, and I'm I had the opportunity. A very rich friend who's not my employer said, "I will buy all the ads on your show so that you can transmit. Like, I'll just buy the space, and then we can send messages of positivity and." intellectual insight and I thought well that's beautiful but it, what does it do for the podcasting space mm. so I decided I would rather read ads and be aggressive about it being a commercial enterprise so that I wouldn't get pushed off later um, wow you're just trying to make money no no I'm just gonna say it at the beginning uh, th this podcast has to make money for me to keep wanting to do it mm -hmm. because of the other commitments on my time mm -hmm. and but you've also taken on this this model of risk advertising, which I, I find to be really fascinating. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I want to do topics that are controversial now that should not be controversial now. Mm. Right? Um, 
you know, if I wanted to say, what is what does rational support uh, for Donald Trump look like? I know a lot of reasonable people who are Donald Trump supporters. I can't quite wrap my head around it, to be blunt. Yeah, but it's an interesting topic, and I, I imagine I could be canceled for that, right? Mm. Uh, uh, and if you had a traditional sort of boss or or a traditional structure. A network, you know, if your podcast was on CNN podcasts or something, then they might come to you and say, yeah, we're not actually going to do the topic that way, Eric. Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, our advertisers will not allow it. Well, okay, but that's what the mob can do. Right. So the mob can chase your advertisers away to destroy your business model. And so what the idea behind risk advertising is, is that I want um, people who make the products that make our lives better to step up to the plate and say, hey, if you stay within these lines that are reasonable, and you're talking about pornography or drug addiction, you're talking about our political state, you're talking about the state of the genders, whatever it is, and you're trying to do a responsible job, and somebody starts one of these cancellation mobs against you, I wanna know ahead of time that I've got people who are going to go through hell with me and come out the other side and bond with me. and." that will allow me to tackle topics that um, other people can't touch because they're all afraid. It's not that I, it's not that I'm not a pussy, you know, we're all pussies. We're all <laughs> afraid about our reputation for good reason. We're all mm -hmm. afraid about not being able to earn a living and provide for the people around us for good reason. Mm -hmm. The fact that we've got this cackling gaggle of destructive mean-spirited people who form the commentariat, who feel very threatened at the moment because they're not getting paid enough. Um, this is a very dangerous situation. A lot of people on my side of the aisle, that is the American left, have gone with an idea of, you gotta break a few eggs to make an omelet, progress is messy. Yeah, some people are gonna get hurt, shoes on the other foot. This is the reverse oppression movement. Some people were trying to end oppression as part of social justice. Some people are like, let's try flipping the, flipping the roles a little bit. Mm -hmm. And those people need to be handed a big fat L. Yeah, and, and you, I mean, in fact, even someone like yourself saying you're, you're, you're left of center, you're on the left side of the political spectrum, it's funny because I thought you were a right-wing Nazi based on some opinions that I see online, which is unbelievable to me. Because well, it's not serious. That, uh, no, no offense, but that is for dumb people. Okay, that that that's fine. But but then what we're saying there is, uh, what dumb dumb people aren't entitled to the information. No, Nazis uh, kill people with last names like Weinstein. Of course they do. No, no, it, no. But I'm just trying to say something. Like, let's slow down what you just said. Yeah. It's so prima facie preposterous. The interesting thing isn't the accusation. The interesting thing is that we have to discuss this. Mm. How amazing that people who've lost relatives to industrialized murder mm -hmm. carried out under the Nazi regime mm -hmm. have to listen to being called a Nazi by people who have serious jobs or jobs that used to be serious because they're sitting at the Atlantic or the New York Times or the New Yorker. And they're becoming less serious by the day. Right, and we need to save these people from themselves. And this mm. goes back to something that we, that we were talking about earlier, which is um, what do you do when your parent is your child? Mm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So 
you're talking about a situation with your father, and let, let me skip to the end. Your dad. Mm-hmm. He's not dad. No. He's developmentally <clears throat> fused with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. You are going to have to do this extra work that he can't do in order to fix that relationship. Well, the mm-hmm. same thing is true with like the New York Times and the New Yorker and Harvard and the Democratic Party, which is, okay, so you've all collectively gone insane. Interesting. You've gone insane in the same way. Fascinating. Those of us who have not gone insane have to not get caught up in your um, self-destructive, self-extinguishing bullshit. This is a great country with tons of crimes under its belt. Mm -hmm. We are founded on inconsistent principles. Mm -hmm. If your decision is that you in 2019 are gonna take the world's greatest governmental experiment with all of its warts, with all of, I mean, we've done terrible things. This business about slavery, absolutely no joke. Mm -hmm. We've killed innocents in war that didn't need to die, Abu Ghraib, blah, blah, blah. Just pile it all on. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're gonna take this country and you're gonna say, wow, our founding documents are inconsistent and we have a history of slavery and not everything we say is true and then you're gonna just dismantle the whole thing? No, 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 no. There's a sweater with some loose threads. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, stop pulling on them. Stop pulling on them all at once, pretending that you're trying to save the sweater. We can see what you're doing. Oh, yeah. Great analogy. That's a, Yeah, it is. You know, I'm not pretending that the threads aren't there, and I don't know what to do about them exactly, but mm-hmm. I know that when I've got loose threads on a sweater, the thing to do is to get very still. Don't thrash, say okay. What are we gonna do about the level of asymmetric prosecution of young black men? Why are there so many young black men in our nation's prisons for crimes that white men are also committing? Right, right. Right? There is a systemic, uh, there's, there are still systemic issues, but the an- I think what you're saying is the answer isn't, well, now we need to go oppress a different group. It's to stop oppressing groups that are being oppressed currently. Now's the time to come together. We got we got serious work to do. There really is structural oppression and there really is fake structural oppression. Mm-hmm. And our, our, the, the, the point of this time is not what we're doing. No. The point of this time is to say, oh my God, after so many years of screwing so many things up, but getting better and getting better and getting better, we finally are in some position where we're, we're within spitting distance of being the country that we used to claim we were when we weren't. Right. And if that's not exciting to you, check in. I mean, I, th- I think it has to do with the fact that people don't realize what an adult love for your country looks like. It mm. doesn't look like my country right or wrong or USA or chanting some stupid stuff like that. It means like saying, okay, who are we? Where have we been? What is the work that we really have to do? And not not looking to burn the whole thing down because you found out that there's an inconsistency or that there was an unfairness or that there was a cover-up somewhere. Right, there are mm. going to be inconsist- inconsistencies. There's going to be hypocrisy. But I, I, I want to go back for a second to... Sorry, you did. You just l- led with this thing about I, me being a Nazi. And no, uh, well, such a, it, of, of course... 
obviously that's not my opinion. I wouldn't have a, a Nazi no, in no, here. No, no, no. But, but my point was different. My point was, why am I even in a position where I'm listening? The only reason that that mattered is, is that it probably came from somebody who's sitting in a chair at the Atlantic or at the Washington Post or who knows where. And the key issue is that that chair empowered that person as if they were a grown-up. Mm-hmm. And we have a an emergency, which is that all of our best chairs, the elite chairs, have non-elite people in them. Mm. And so so I think that's, that's different from saying someone like that is stupid. I don't think they're necessarily stupid. Uh, I think that um, maybe they're in a position that they shouldn't be in. And just take the, the Nazi thing off the table for a second. Anyone who calls you right wing even... It, there's a couple implicit messages there. One is that right wing is necessarily a bad thing, but couldn't we have a conversation about some reasonable people who are on the right? Of course we could. Well, right wing does, does doesn't sound good to me, but conservative sounds just fine. Well, right, okay, but they they tend to mean the same thing um, because they're used interchangeably, and that's my point. Is even you're right. It's a stupid thing for someone to they start to lump in right wing and the conservative right wing alt right and then all of a sudden it's like nazi sympathizer <laughs> nazi adjacent and you're like all the, these terms it, by the way we're talking about someone who politically for the last you know uh, many decades would have been considered you know pretty far on the left in uh, almost all respects um would have been considered it's like that's weasel language man i mean i'm on <laughs> I come from a progressive family. I don't need to check my credentials anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got a problem. Somebody's got a mental problem. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got a power problem, an oppression problem. Whoever these people are, we need to not listen to these people. It's really important that we not spend our time saying, well, there was an interesting column today in today's New York Times. Like, I don't know what the New York Times is right now, hmm. but it's not a newspaper. How do we actively mm. not listen to that? And and what are, what are we replacing it with? Because obviously, I mean, we've talked about podcasts being this the new medium, the, the sort of new frontier. we're in charge. Absolutely. And it's time to tar- take back our own institutions. Hmm. Like it's time to inflict the best of long form podcasting on NPR, on Harvard and Yale, on the Democratic Party, time has run out, as far as I'm concerned, for the Hillary and Bill Clinton world, yeah. Oh, yeah. and even the Obama world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the baby boomer Davos mentality is over. It doesn't mean that jingoism is cool. It doesn't mean that um, we should become an isolationist nation. But that was a means of redistributing wealth, pretending to be philanthropists, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like how, what, I've heard that the Clintons have uh, nine figures worth of wealth. Well, What did they do? Did they invest? Did they create? Is that asynchronous backsheesh where you get paid <laughs> after you're in office for things that you did? And I don't know. Well, almost definitely. I mean, what is what does someone like Bill Clinton get paid for a speech? Millions of dollars, five million dollars, um, for for what? 
I mean, do you know anyone who gives a five million dollar speech to bankers? No, of course not. It's an endorsement, um, right? I mean, that's really what it comes well, no, down to. In, in there, the rear, I don't. Yes, it, it is one thing to make a lot of money from books and a lot of money from speaking, but the level of it, the pig out, is vile. And to, to hear from people who live in a community, I think, is ninety two percent white. I would freak out, man, if I was in a community that was 92% white. Mm. Um, hopefully LA is not 92% white. Uh, you know, there's something wrong with the Davos mentality. It's one thing to talk about the environment. It's another thing to fly around on a private jet and talk about the environment. <laughs> but it's something to fly around on a private jet and talk scoldingly and non -aware, in a non-aware fashion about people's carbon footprint like you have to have some level of awareness yeah like i'm leading with my hypocrisy there's no question that i'm a hypocrite i don't want to go into my private life i don't want to talk about everything that's that's happening with me these guys are very different mm. they're preaching constantly as they're putting money in their pockets mm. and i just think that that scam has to end yeah yeah and, totally and by the way just just for the record, I'm not against people making money for giving talks. Ryan and I go give talks, and we we, we make money for it. The the it's the sort of um, it, yeah. But there's also talks that we've been offered money for that we've turned down. That we're like, there's no way we would go talk for that specific group. Right, but also what I'm talking, or if like if Joe Rogan makes five million dollars from doing a, a large concert, like I would, he's no, he's bringing I, that amount of value. My, that's not my point. My point is. What is the marginal difference between getting paid for giving a talk for the talk and for your insight? Right. And here's a here's an interesting thing. How about you do stuff for us and then when you're out of office, right. we'll set the price of your speaking fee far mm. above what it needs to be yeah. so that we can communicate to the next inhabitant of the office. Here's the how the game goes. Right, right. Mm. Oh yeah, I didn't even think of it, but it's, it's, it's telegraphing it in a way of, of the next person who's in office as well. well. That, that's, that's the whole point is is that it's, uh, you know, we are reliable enough. We, we, Investment Bank X, have made your predecessors quite wealthy, mm -hmm. and we will do that for you. Right. Yeah. Right? We've got some audience questions here. I'd like Man. to dive into these. Uh, Luke says, there's a far more fundamental task than what Marie Kondo has taken up. We all know how to declutter our houses, but how do we declutter our desires it's interesting because like i don't think you just get rid of your desires i mean it's going back to the the monkey brain i mean we have these we see something shiny we want it i mean we have these desires that are always going to be there so i mean for me it's about learning how to deal with those desires you had a great example earlier when you're talking about how you got really angry at this at this tweet yeah and you could have just had a reaction to it and, and picked and probably win a I fight. I did have that reaction. Well, right, 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 right exactly. Yeah. So, so you had this desire, yeah, to, uh, to to continue to to engage in this fight and and maybe win the fight, but instead you were able to look at that desire and say, "Hold on, I've got this desire. How how can I actually react to this in a way that isn't going to be impulsive and isn't going to just feed that monkey part of the brain?" And I think that's Josh when we talk about minimalism. It's helping people deal with all of these desires that we have in a consumeristic world. It's we all have them. We all want 
I want a Tesla, man. I really want a Tesla. Yeah. And I could go out and I could afford a lease payment. Actually, I could go out and afford and, and I mean, it would take the vast majority of what I have to like, uh, I'd have to dip into my house fund to like, yeah. you know, pay cash for a Tesla. Okay. But I understand that the urge I have for a Tesla right. is f uh, the, the reward that I would get from it that I feel like I would get is actually not the reward I would get but from it. This is what the French philosopher Lacan called object A. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, the, the thing that we want, that, that we think is going to fix everything, it's this impulse, it, it, whether it's the Tesla yeah. or- If I had a Tesla, I'd enjoy LA more. Like it, that's one lie that I tell myself. I know it's a lie. Or if you are uh, monogamous, all of a sudden the threesome is object A. Right. Or if you are a serial dater, then monogamy becomes object A. If you are a Christian conservative, then becoming a hippie is object A. If you're a hippie, then you'll see the impulse to become a monk. Uh, th there's there's always this thing that we think if I can achieve that if I yeah. buy the house then I've all of a sudden uh, it's going to fix whatever problem I have and, and and this one desire will be the the key to then my my happiness or joy. Jeez, suddenly I'm thinking about like a threesome with uh, Christian hippies. <laughs> <laughs> Hot. <we> <laughs> um, yeah. I, the the problem is is that some of those things actually bring you great and lasting happiness and joy, mm -hmm. and um, I think as a result we don't know. Like it may be that you spend so much time in traffic that that Tesla would actually do that for you. Mm -hmm. um, the way I would advise thinking about this is have a conference with your desires, like. Oof. Just take a metacognitive perspective that you're gonna sit at the head of the table and you're gonna invite your desires to sit down with you without judgment initially. Yeah. Like, hey, let's just talk about like what we're really interested in. In general, we don't actually talk about our, we don't talk to our desires because we're afraid of our desires. We're afraid of what weird thing we want. And if you hold a conference with your various desires, um, you'll notice that some of them sound really ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, like you remember that scene in uh, the Matrix where the uh, the traitor is having uh, he's eating the steak. He's eating. He's like, mm. I, I want to be somebody of importance. Yeah, you know, and it's like, doesn't that feel weird to say I want status, uh -huh. and yet everybody wants status? But mm. when you say it out loud, it does make it seem far more absurd than when it's just rattling no, around in our brain. I, I have a different take on that, which is, it. My first cut is, wow, that's really weird. Why you're such a loser, dude? You're you're so focused on status. And my next thought is, holy cow, with some status, you can get your phone calls returned uh -huh. you know and maybe you can get a, a seat uh at the uh restaurant for your anniversary which you forgot to plan for well what you're talking about is the why not just the what well and when you when you have this conference with your desires yeah. you're interrogating them in a way where you're asking why do i want that as opposed to what do i want well that's yeah. it right and the immediate hit on a lot of your desires is that you're ashamed of them and so when you ask them to sit down, what you're doing is you're suspending that shame filtering to actually listen to what is underneath that desire. Mm -hmm. And what I think is, is that we're, we're 
maxed out on shame. Hmm. Right? And so you have to get metacognitive and realize that your desires are components of you, but they aren't you. Hmm. And they're often about things that are much more wholesome than the surface level hit. Uh, they go deep. A lot of yeah. very deep. Yeah. Right, like, you know, this. I've never owned a really impressive car. Yeah. And I don't think that's something I have to do before I'm gone. Even though you have the means to do it. Even though I may have the means to do it, I don't have a very strong need. I mean, I might do it, mm -hmm. but that's not a big part. But like, I've also never owned a Les Paul. And mm -hmm. I don't know whether that's a kind of a douchey thing or whether I want, I want to get Gibson and Kalamazoo, Michigan, you know, back on the map, damn it, um, because they've mismanaged their brand. Remember that whole play authentic thing? Um, maybe a Les Paul would make me happy. I just got a wah pedal. Uh, for my birthday from my son. I never had a pedal for my guitar to give me that cool Hendrix sound. Mm. And it's making me ridiculously happy. Okay, well, I couldn't voice that. I couldn't say, that's just a desire. That's a thing that I want. I have it in mind, well, you're not good enough to deserve a wah pedal. Mm. Like, where did that come from? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, it's a narrative that, that we've yeah. created that, that either I do deserve this or I don't deserve it. And what I would say is um, hold a conference and make a, a deal with yourself that you will have a metacognitive perch and you'll invite your desires to sit with you and you won't judge them because you want to hear what they sound like. And they're going to sound ridiculous. Mm -hmm. They're going to sound like, how do you justify wanting a threesome? Don't, don't justify it. Just say, okay, well, that's something that I don't know what that, I don't know what's going on with that. Yeah, like where does that really come from? Right. Why, why do I want the threesome? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, in that particular case, there's this interesting theory um, about what's called the polygyny threshold in, um, in evolutionary biology, which is that at some point, um, resource provision is significant enough that females competing for a, a, a male interest uh, say for, for the benefit of my offspring, uh, I would prefer a half share of a giant pie than a 100% interest in a much smaller pie. Right. Hmm. So maybe that thing about threesomes isn't about monopolizing women sexually. Maybe that thing for you is about the fact that you've got unresolved status issues mm -hmm. and that somebody lied to you in a bar about how they were killing it. And now you feel one down right? and you're not realizing that the thing that they claimed was happening wasn't actually happening in their life and that you have a status issue that that would speak to. I'd love to hear you have a conversation with uh, our friend Christopher Ryan, the Sex at Dawn author. He just had a new book come out called Civilized to Death, which he rather facilely handles in a way he handles Steven Pinker and, and um, Richard Dawkins and, and he takes them both on in ways that I'd, I've never seen someone take them on because I, I tend to agree with a lot of what those two guys say. But um, I, when I, I was reading um, Civilized to Death, he, 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 I mean, the, the thesis of the book is that, you know, there is quite, we've paid quite a price for progress. Yeah. And, and, and now here we are. Um, but of course, he, 
the 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 opening line of the book acknowledges that he's also a hypocrite the, the opening line is call me ungrateful and he goes into list all of the wonderful things that modernity has has given his life mm. but but also like he well, makes that's a great opening hmm. is there a but no okay i mean <laughs> that, 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 my <laughs> chief complaint with dawkins and pinker is that you can see that they are serving some god that is off camera Mm. In Pinker's case, for example, he wants a very optimistic perspective because he, for whatever reason, so he neglects what I call the potential energy term mm. of the potential destruction. So even as violence rates decrease, a lot of that is because our potential for destruction has gotten enormous. And so if you had a conserved equation, right, and you have kinetic violence versus potential violence, yes, the kinetic violence has gone down. And if you have no term for potential violence, then everything just got way better, right? right? In the case of Dawkins, it's absolutely bizarre. Young Dawkins understood all sorts of things that unfortunately make us more sympathetic to religion. And old Dawkins just does not like religion, mm. you know? I mean, I'm not saying young Dawkins loved it, but a lot of religion has to do with adaptation. And it's very weird that there's a there, there appears to be a lack of self-awareness about self-awareness you know you it's just treat that podcast sean <laughs> i just I, I i feel very strongly that i'm much more inclined to meet someone who starts off from you know you know that these rules that we have for ourselves are inconsistent you know that we're all transgressing them you know that we're all hypocrites because once you've sort of dispensed with that your authority in my mind goes up rather than down. Mm. And that's just a very powerful difference that some people are very attracted to the people who give that moral clarity. And then I always expect to find out that they're caught in an airport bathroom doing something that they're Bill not Cosby. supposed to do. He, he's yeah. a, the, the sort of uh, almost a, a parody of, of that now because like he was Mr. Moral Clarity, right? And... and holier than thou telling young black youths to pull up their pants and all of a sudden you find out oh no he's allegedly raping dozens of women um and 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 you realize like oh like when there is no room for hypocrisy or or um or sin we, we had a comedian on here not that long ago um andrew schultz and he, the thing he was talking about, uh, and you had you had a uh, Brian Callen on the podcast recently. It was really yeah. really good because I think life's I think it was Kafka who said life's most serious issues can be discussed only through jokes, and and Brian Callen does that. Uh, uh, Dave Chappelle does it really well. Andrew Schultz does it really well. And the thing he was talking about is the thing we're not comfortable with is it is and it isn't like modernity is great and it isn't great. Like Twitter is great and it isn't great yeah. and we want the absolute. No, we don't. Mm. We, we think we want the absolute. We think we want the absolute f at first. Mm. And then the point is is that I'd much rather have nearly absolute statements about the components of a mixed picture. Like I can tell you what's terrible about Twitter with fair confidence mm -hmm. and what's great about Twitter with fair confidence. Yeah. And what I don't get is the stranglehold that short form media has on the minds of so many people, right? That it's the short form that wants to come to these very definite conclusions. 
Well, I think there's this, this, it's almost like it's a, <clears throat> the short form thing is an on-ramp to our attention. It's a quick on-ramp to our attention. Meaning when Ryan was talking earlier, I'm watching Netflix and all of a sudden I feel like I need to go to my, I feel the impulse to go to my phone, right? Because very quickly within 15 seconds, I could check Twitter or something. You don't feel the impulse to go wash your car while you're watching the movie necessarily, right? right? Yeah. And it's because that requires some bit of effort that will take your attention away from the thing. And we, we've also been sold this meme of, of multitasking that I, I don't really think that it, it exists the way that we wish well, it existed. But I, I think we check short form media for a very different reason, which is really unholy, mm. which is we want to know, it's like checking the weather you want to figure out, should I put on a sweater? Do I need a jacket, shorts? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to a party this weekend. What is an allowable perspective to have on Donald Trump? Hmm. Right? I I'm want to know what is what are the boundaries that I have to stay within <clears throat> so that I don't, like if Donald Trump just did something really good and I'm going to a bunch of a party with a bunch of people who think Donald Trump is in general quite bad, mm -hmm. Uh, what should I do, hmm. right? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, did, did Hitler did some good things. It would be very hard to be the head of a country and do no good, right? Yeah. Yet that makes us very uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Well, sometimes the the well, it's just the, the cloud of what was so so bad. Uh, I mean, Hitler's obviously the the terminus example well, here. The, right. Right. It's the absurd example. On the one hand, I can barely get my lips to say that Hitler did anything good, right. Because I don't want to sully the fact that the guy was unbelievably the height of evil. Yeah. On the other hand, am I? Am I degrading my credibility because I can't acknowledge right. that he had a uh, you know curb your dog program in Berlin that decreased the amount of poop in the streets that had nothing to do with anything? I don't know, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that those conundrums and puzzles are settled for us uh -huh. by short form media, mm. right? Like, tell yeah. me, tell me, what are the two views I can have on Nancy Pelosi? Neither of which will get me fired. <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> yeah i mean and and also it, it becomes these the these bite-sized in a way it's like it's either binary or or pseudo binary the, the donald trump example is even now it's like the two the the two answers seem seem to be well depending on what party you're going to maybe there's three answers but one is like either keep your mouth shut is answer one or answer two. And sometimes that's not even good enough. You have to have the appropriately formulated um, negative thing to say about him in order to be uh, accepted by by a group. Even if you don't necessarily agree with those yeah, things, you're expected I'm much more to. focused on why is the media running our conversation when they don't appear to be competent? Mm. This is the very confusing thing yeah. to me. In I don't even word, know the answer to that. That's it's a very valuable question. Yeah, it's confusing. It is. And, I mean, in other words, I think what we found out out is that most of these reporters are not more interesting than other people who are interested in giving us their opinions. Mm -hmm. oh, that's so true, right? And that is, it's a particular thing. I'm going to work for an institutional, co you know, company. I'm going to have my hot takes, and they're going to come in this these like consumable units that I know how to consume. I went to a, a party uh, on the East Coast 
when I was still living over there. And I was listening to this discussion. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And that other perspective is interesting. And then I realized I had heard the entire discussion before uh, a day or two earlier on NPR. And I was listening to this group of people. And I said, how many of you listen to NPR? Every single hand went up. And I said, do you realize that you just rehashed a discussion you had heard on NPR and you took this perspective and you took that? Hmm. And like it suddenly dawned on them that they weren't having their own thoughts, that they were contributing things that were known to play well together. Hmm. And that really, that concerns me. That yeah. that we what we're doing is we're checking the news, not for information, but for where we can stand and not be fired. Yeah, That segues us into this next question here perfectly. Brooke asks, how do you differentiate between what you truly believe and what you were taught to believe? And, and that's kind of what's happening there. I mean, maybe indirectly that they're being taught to believe this, this thing and then it manifests in, in the conversation. But I think what Brooke is, if I'm backed into a corner, I would say ultimately it's the same thing, right? If you were taught to believe something and now you believe it, you truly believe it. And then the question then becomes, how do you unbelieve it? How do you get untaught? Hmm. I mean, the way I, that I got out of my upbringing teachings, the, the, the dogmatics that I was raised with is I started to, well, the organization I grew up in does a very good job of tearing apart all the other organizations and their reasoning that they had. I started looking at, I started looking at themselves yeah, and I started asking questions like, Oh, they, they discredit such and such for these reasons. What about, this organization I'm in right now, can I apply those same, you know, those same thoughts to this organization? Where are they doing the same exact thing? That they're basically, where's the organization itself? A hypocrite. So what I'm getting at is, <clears throat> is that if you can argue against these teachings and the teachings hold up, then you can continue to believe in them. But if you, you know, if you start to criticize beliefs and you can tear your own beliefs down, like you, you do have to ask yourself, like, are these beliefs that I should sink my teeth into? Or is this where I should stand my ground? Does that make sense? Eric, you tend to, you, you tend to be, you strike me as a person at least that, that does that you, you, you put your beliefs in the sort of arena of ideas to make them stronger in a way. Well, I guess what I do is I, first of all, recognize that, by the way, you'll notice that you guys both discussed Fight Club and I refused to discuss Fight Club. <laughs> I, haven't, haven't I did notice film. that. You're, you well, haven't read the book. No, I just followed the instruction. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's great. That's hilarious. Yeah. But I hold, uh, I hold uh, you know, idea UFC in my own head. Yeah. Because I don't believe these things simply i'm very aware of being a divided individual and i believe that that's normal mm -hmm. and what concerns me is the extent to which people feel compelled to say this i believe about things that can't possibly be true or false unfalsifiable well they're just you lose a certain layer of resolution um when you have to like do violence to a concept to make it bite size. Mm. And so, you know, if somebody says to me, 
um, you know, like who's the greatest athlete? You know, LeBron James or uh, Pele? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that question. Yeah, well, it's in on its face. It's it's also actually not on its face, but uh, under the surface, it is. It becomes an absurd question because we use the word the term athlete. Like they're both certainly athletes, right? But like. Uh, just like we use the term sports, right? Like, I guess badminton's a sport. Is there a, the greatest badminton athlete? I'm sure there is. And how do they compare to LeBron James, right? Mm. Well, you know, like I usually give the the answer like, uh, no, I'm I'm just a fan of Bob Beeman. Do you know who Bob Beeman <laughs> no. is? No. <laughs> Bob Beeman was the guy who, in the '68 Olympics, uh, in the long jump, I forget what he jumped two feet longer than anyone had ever jumped. When normally records were built, you know, broken by millimeters, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's like we didn't know how good you could be at that sport until Bob took off and barely came down, you know. Um, yeah. But the point is that most most of the time that we're holding these opinions that represent us, they can't possibly represent us because they're just at the long, wrong layer of complexity, and I think get in touch first of all with your divided self, figure out what you've been taught and how it fits in. Like even, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. I guarantee you without knowing you and without knowing anything about the Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, you learned some very valuable stuff from that organization. There's a lot that I took away from it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's very important not to say, you know, it's a cult. Oh yeah. I In fact, I avoid saying that because they're, it would be hypocritical to say like yeah. they're a hundred percent evil. But it is a cult, and it's a religion, and it's a social organization. <laughs> it is, and it is an insurance policy, and yeah. you know, it's like all these different things mm-hmm. that it is. And get more adept, I think, at harmonizing your beliefs rather than using your beliefs to construct your identity. Make your identity about struggle, about dialectic, about inquiry, and you'll be a happier person than if you make your your life about your findings and your conclusions. And sometimes mm. it is useful to have those sort of aphorisms or um, pithy sayings about about whatever, as long as you, as long as you understand or, and are willing to explain the nuance behind that that saying. Well, I I wouldn't say that. I would say that. If you have aphorisms that are important to you. Well, there's a reason that aphorisms exist. No, I, I totally agree. But most aphorisms are going to sp- either be tautologies. Right. In which case, even tautologies can be quite valuable because they point you at a particular um, truth. Or they're heuristics. And the heuristics have to be checked for it. Is that the heuristic that applies right now? Mm. Um or is that a heuristic that doesn't? And, you know, I think about the Alcoholics Anonymous line about give me the wisdom to accept the things I cannot change, change the things I cannot accept and the wisdom to know the difference, whatever it is. Yeah, serenity prayer. Yeah, okay, whatever that thing is, is about regulated expression. How do I know in a particular situation whether I should be letting something be or working doggedly to change it? And hold your aphorisms in dialectical couplets. You know, if um, 
if if nothing ventured, nothing gained, and uh, and look before you leap, or and he you hesitates is lost. That's like this famous little complex of things. I don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that's the whole point. The whole point is is that that's a dialectic, um, and you're responsible for the synthesis. Right. And you're not going to have a general rubric, but how you how you approach the synthesis is going to define your life. Not so much the fact that you hold these things that many people have reduced to aphorism. And I just, I feel like the tyranny of heuristics has made, has immiserated people um, because they believe that they're dealing with fundamental truths. And then they find out too late that, no, that was just a heuristic and it should have had its <clears throat> domain of applicability stated as part of the heuristic. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Joshua Hook has a question. Can you believe in something like religion, even if you have doubts? Can you believe and truly be open to others who believe differently? I mean, I think necessarily, yes. You, in fact, being open to other people who believe differently also means what? That we're also open to admitting we're wrong or we're willing to admit that we can change. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, it's very hard to believe what we were able to believe in very insular communities. I'm, I'm sure that the Amish uh, are able to hold certain belief systems that they wouldn't be able to believe, particularly if they're very hard line um, without contact with others. But uh, I think that in general, meeting other people of good character who believe different things than you do um, is this has never been easier? It's very hard to avoid meeting people outside of your your community. Yeah, and especially because the the communities are more sort of disparate now than than ever. We were talking earlier about religion being the that was the community at one point. My community is my church, sort of thing, and now it's it's not that your community can be Ryan's men's group. It could be the podcast community. It could be a bunch of different things. Yeah. And there's sort of a Venn diagram of overlap there, but sometimes they may not overlap at all. I like you bring up the Amish. <clears throat> it makes me think there are certain religions, not all religions, but they create this. Um, I'm not saying this pejoratively. I'm just, it is what it is. I pick on the Amish because I think they're not allowed to listen to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's a smart tactic. Yeah, it's great. I but, share it with you guys, but don't let anyone else know. <laughs> but they, they create uh, a fantasy world. And in a lot of religions, like the Amish, yeah. you have to accept the the beliefs, the dogmatics. You really can't have a whole lot of doubt to main, to maintain that fantasy world. And the in the minute that you step outside of, I forget what they call it when like the teenagers are allowed to leave and go do whatever they want. They are told spring break. Spring. No, <laughs> spring. There's actually like a death. No, 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 I know. Yeah. I, 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 I forgotten that. I forget what it's called. It's a great word. Yeah. It is, and I forget. Yeah. It. I want to say Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's I not think it. no, no, no. It's good enough. Rumpelstiltskin. When, when they're in Rumpelstiltskin. But 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 you know they're told. Hey, when you go out there, here's what's going to happen. And maybe some of it or all of it does happen, but here are the reasons why it happens. Yeah. And those reasons are attached to this fantasy world that they have been living in their whole lives. So in order for them to 
go back to that community, they have to accept all of those beliefs and reasonings to maintain this idea of the world that has been presented to them. Yeah. So I, I guess to because I mean I'm trying to answer this question of sure. you know can you can you have doubts and stay in a religion? Can you uh, you know accept other people outside of religion? I think yeah, there are some religions out there, but I think there are other religions out there that absolutely you cannot have doubts and stay in the religion. Which you, one? Like Amish, for example. It would be not that you can't have doubts; you can't foster those yeah, doubts. I, I don't really believe this. Or okay, or um, the other question is: is can you accept other people, or can you you know associate with other people? I mean, to stay in that that Amish world, you can't really make best friends with someone outside well, of that. The, may be outside of the but fantasy you world. Have some group that uh, handles Amish non Amish interactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Amish people work for people who are non Amish. Yeah, I, there's going to be interactions. Right. So what I'm trying to get at is that all of these statements. I think one of, this is one of the reasons why religion has taken it on the chin is that those of us who aren't particularly religious have formed crazy ideas about what it means to be religious like you can't have any doubts in this religion show me one religion on earth one i beg you i dare you mm -hmm. in which people don't have doubts it's not about not having doubts it's about i mean i guess i'm speaking to fostering those doubts yeah so to, to in order for someone to be in a religion okay. Right. It's it's something like the Amish. They cannot sit there and foster their doubts or eventually they will realize the fantasy world for what it is. But sorry. I, I live in a fantasy world called the United States of America. <laughs> I am, Fair enough. I am very conscious of this fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's a shared fantasy sure. and it's a pretty awesome one at that. Yeah. Right? We are the land of the free and the home mm -hmm. of the brave. We, we have imaginary that. lines that we agree on and yeah. Well, no. I mean, we, we enforce some of those lines with guns, right? So that... <laughs> Makes the fantasy a little bit more real for okay. those of you. But like yeah. Home of the Brave, have you ever checked out like the Peshmerga women's militias mm. kicking ass on ISIS? Hey, shout out to all you Kurdish gals. Uh, <laughs> that, talk about the Home of the Brave. Those gals, they bring it, yeah. you know? Yeah. I don't know whether they would look at us soft as we are and say, oh, they're the Home of the Brave. Are you guys kidding me? The um, We are in a shared fantasy. Mm -hmm. And th this is what I call adult level uh, fiction and structural fiction and load bearing fiction. So it's really easy to look at the Amish. What's well, much harder to do is to look at like one man, one vote. Are you kidding me? One man, one vote. What is Wyoming doing with all those votes? They're like four people and some bison. And you know, we've got bajillions of people in California, they get two senators, we get two senators. Right. There's no one man, one vote. You know what, you know what? That is a shared fantasy. Mm. Right. Okay, so we have all of this shared fantasy that doesn't make any sense, and we are the Amish. Mm. Now, my just question- on, Just on a larger scale, you're saying? Well, right, like I have a friend who's a Mormon who doesn't believe in the church. And you know, he's like, I have to become, uh, honest and, and, and tell the community that I said, look, settle down. <laughs> You're just going to spill out into some other fantasy mm. before you do something super violent. Let's talk through the fact that there is no non fantasy community. They're mm -hmm. all fantasies. To uh, an, yeah. To an extent. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. And so this is where a little bit of humility, look, I'm in a better cult than some of the cults I've been in before. I was I was part of the science cult. 
Mm. Now I'm in a higher level of the science cult. Mm. I still believe in science, but do I believe in peer review? You've got to be kidding me. Oh my God. Uh, well, do, because you, do well, I believe in the National Academy of Sciences? Please, I've been there too much. You've mm. been exposed to it, and that's why you don't believe it. The same reason your, your Mormon friend, who in a weird way probably wants to remain culturally nor Mormon, which is probably not- want to lose all, all, all family members right. and be, yeah. But, but at the same time, he acknowledges it is and it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. he, there are benefits yeah. from, from the Mormon faith, even if he doesn't believe every uh, doctrine of you know, the 14-year-old the who found these tablets. Um, it, he, he believes in something greater than that, and it's the sense of community he got. So some of my closest friends are Mormons in Utah, mm -hmm. and they're some of the best people I've ever met. And also, they have some beliefs that I can't seem to reconcile in my own brain, and that's totally okay. Yeah, yeah but I mean, I'm just trying to get at the idea that let's not straw man the world's major religions or communities. We're all living in fantasy mm -hmm. communities. And don't cheat yourself out of fantasy and out of belief. Don't You don't have to pull on every thread because, you know, there is a there are there is a way in which the truth will set you free, but there's also a different aphorism that I would put in, which is the truth will set you back. Mm. Hmm. So be very careful about pursuing truths past the point of diminishing returns, where they start to destroy meaning, they start to destroy um, decency, you know, mm. and, and that's one of the things that I find very disturbing. Like I think that. Um, some of this race realism. Yeah, you know, there's a huge fiction out there about genetics, about mm -hmm. the blank slate theory. But there was something decent and beautiful about the blank slate theory. The idea that, you know, we our founding documents say right. all men are created equal. Right. And Look at LeBron James and tell me he and I are equal in any like athletic <laughs> measurement whatsoever. But it's a beautiful fantasy to believe like yeah. we're created equal. On the other hand, it doesn't work evolutionarily because if you if you believe that we are all sort of naively equal and that anybody can grow up to be anything, and you claim that you believe in the theory of natural and sexual selection, you've got a rendezvous between those two perspectives that you're probably avoiding and you're going to get really angry when somebody points out that you're completely self inconsistent. Mm -hmm. That is not a call to become one of these so-called quote race realists, close quote. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so my, my perspective is we need to be upgrading people's knowledge about what they can say, what they can't say, how to be decent in a way that will survive inquiry. But we also have to know that, you know, there are dangerous truths that have to be orphaned by civil society that then become the basis for some sort of cult, right? Like we cast these truths over the city walls and then there's some group out there who takes over that truth. Yeah. You know, so for example, um, I, I pick on the Boston Marathon because after 1987, it's been dominated by people from Kenya and Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could explore that to death, and I, you know, I talk about this one example, so I don't have to come up with a bunch of them. Um, there is clearly something going on uh, having to do with the genetics 
of people from a very small area within those countries. It's not, it's not all of Kenya and all of Ethiopia. Uh, do I want to follow that to the point that I'm starting to talk about um, genetic advantages in a way that I think is destructive of the fabric of my society? I really don't. Yeah. Now I think that you know if we keep investigating it, which we're going to, because the data is going to be there, right. we've got a lot of rude surprises in our future. And our challenge isn't to turn that into "Am I tough enough to look at those?" It's just, well, how am I going to be decent in the future? based on the fact that I expect that the theory of natural and sexual selection is going to undermine a lot of the load-bearing fiction that makes up what I consider to be the greatest country on earth. How, how am I gonna handle these truths and sort of uh, I don't know, perform triage on them in certain ways where you just asked, do I wanna follow that thread? Um, in most cases, probably not. Is, is it necessary to follow it? Well, but it's going to end up being followed because you're going to aggregate data. So if I just take something very clearly inflammatory, take chess. We have a ton of data on chess. Use it as a proxy for intelligence. Not all intelligence, but a particular kind of intelligence. Sure. There's no barrier to entry. Anybody can play against great chess computers you're going to find patterns in chess that are going to be incredibly disturbing. You can't stop it. You allow people to play chess and you get to watch the results and you get to say, okay, well, here's how males did against females. Mm -hmm. or here's how, here's how Asians did against Europeans, whatever it is. When things start to emerge from that data set, are you going to suppress it? Are you going to fixate on it? Are you going to say, okay, it's a challenge. Maybe I'm going to learn some stuff that I don't want to know. And now what do I do? And so my belief is that a certain amount we should talk about and a certain amount we should bury because it doesn't serve our societal interests. We should hmm. handle the truth carefully. And we should suppress some of it a little bit, not too much, because if you suppress it, you're going to make it seem like, oh, wow, you know. Conspiracy theorists are going to. Eat on, it's going to turn into an Easter egg. Yeah. Well, look, a, I, look what I just found. Right, you know? I have a friend who's a pastor who said, if you want to get your, if you want your kids to read the Bible, tell them they're not allowed to read it. Um, and that's the, you know, the, the so the suppression you know, doesn't, you know, that kind of suppression actually leads to the opposite of what what we're trying to to accomplish. Do you have it, an example look, of some truth that should be suppressed? Sure. Like what? Like what? Get just give me. I'm just trying to even think of one. I mean, I think he just, he recited a few there. Well, okay. Uh, the, the, there's a... Like, I guess a truth that's out there right now. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're talking about the Boston Marathon, then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's a very, well, you know, um, in that case, um, what you're doing is you're opening up the, uh, you're opening up the doors of a box that says, there may be strong genetic proclivities to excel at certain things that are not evenly distributed between widely geographically separated groups. Okay. And if your idea was, I mean, before 1987, all sorts of people from different countries won the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. And there was no presence of East, East Africans. Um, but when East Africans discovered the Boston Marathon, everything changed. <clears throat> so... Um, okay. I see what you're saying. Like you want to dig only. That, wanna, I, I, I was comfortable there because the idea of complaining about East African supremacy seems ridiculous. Right. Now take a, take a skill in which 
males outcompete females. Yeah, I'm already getting nervous even thinking about talking about no, it. No, we're which... not going to get. We're not. Look, we're not trying to be pussies. But what I'm trying to get at is, I don't want to state any one of them in particular because what you're going to see is like, okay, he went for it. Now he's telling us that men are, are smart and women are dumb, mm. right? If I take something else, yeah, right, like you know, uh, I just had a pornographic actress on uh, the portal. And in her workplace, females are paid at a premium. The wage gap is real, and it goes in the female direction, not the male direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can, can I talk about that um, versus can I talk about some situation in which males get paid more than females? Right. You yeah. know, it's a very confusing world that we're now thrust into. And I think part of why we're all at each other's throats is that in the pre-internet era, a lot of this was mediated by friction. It was very hard to get a spot on the 7 p.m. news. It was hard to get a spot on the radio. It was hard to write a letter to the editor and have anyone see it. And so this was managed by friction. Gatekeepers. Yes, and the fact that many of us who consider ourselves to be decent progressives were fed a, a bunch of nonsense which was structural nonsense, which was load-bearing nonsense, maybe even decent and, and beautiful nonsense, hmm. is terrifying. Because we're coming out of that. There's no way, like, there's just no way to suppress something like like the unevenness in chess. Right. There's uh, hmm. one of my favorite lines from Infinite Jess by David Foster Wallace is, the truth will set you free, but only after it's had its way with you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's really reminds me of what you're talking about there. It's like, be careful with the truth because, yeah, it will set you free, maybe, but it's also going to drag you through a lot of things you may not want to be dragged through. Eric, I want to be respectful of your time. So we got two more questions here I, I definitely wanted to get to. Uh, Mike asks, how can I stop judging people for their religious beliefs that I find to be silly? I don't think you even need to put religious in there. How can I stop judging people for their beliefs that I find to be silly is really what Mike is asking. Well, I, I judge people for their beliefs and find them silly. Um, but I always make sure that I judge myself for holding really silly beliefs first because I don't want to sit in you know, judgment of me above them, not necessarily because I'm a decent, wonderful human being, but because I don't want the fall that comes from that, mm. right? And so, you know, um, I sort of believe in Moses and the burning bush because that's very resonant. And even though I intellectually don't, you know, I'm sure he ate some kind of a mushroom or, you know, right. something <laughs> like that. Um, I don't want to sit in judgment of somebody who believes in an elephant headed human mm -hmm. as their God when I believe in such nutty things myself, even if analytically I don't necessarily believe in them, some part of me finds them very resonant. Mm -hmm. And I think, I, th I think don't, don't worry about judging other people. Just work more on judging yourself by the same lens, just the way we were talking before about fantasies. It's not the Amish that are having a fantasies. It's humans that are having a fantasies and some yeah. of them are having Amish fantasies. Well, it's funny because I don't judge the Amish sticking with the Amish because they won't listen to this. Yeah. Um, I don't judge them for Except their during the rumpus still <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't judge them for their fantasy. I, I mean, I was speaking in, a, in and of a way to try no, to no, answer that question, but, but yeah, I mean, if for me, I don't have it figured out. Yeah. In fact, I don't really have any beliefs. Uh, I have accepted the fact that I don't know. 
and that I'm open to different things. But when I look at someone's beliefs that I think are silly, I'm just kind of like, you know what? They don't have it figured out. Like I don't have it figured out. And they use these beliefs to get to a place that help them move through life. Yeah. And, and I can accept people for their wild and crazy and silly beliefs because I don't, because I, I myself don't have it figured out. So for me to look at them and be like, well, you don't have it figured out. That doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't. Right. Although like when somebody has a, um, a fantasy, like in Judaism, I think we started this whole thing about killing apostates mm-hmm. uh, by putting that into, what is it? Deuteronomy, maybe or Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody says, yeah, we should kill apostates because the, the sacred text told me to, mm-hmm. um, I am going to judge that fantasy, but I am going to first say, okay, what what fantasies do I have that look anything like that? Do I have a fantasy, for example, about ethical meat? Mm. I'm a carnivore. I eat meat that has been factory farmed. I, I order things with, with euphemisms, you know? Like when you order veal, are you really thinking about what veal is? Right. right. You it know? requires that additional layer for us to feel comfortable with it. Well, and maybe we shouldn't, and maybe we should. Right. But my key question is, are you struggling? And the person who's convinced that we should kill apostates or homosexuals or anything like that, that person is usually not struggling. And so my harsh condemnation is usually reserved for people who refuse to struggle with these beliefs. And... Mm that don't be afraid of being judgmental, but put it much more on struggle because people who struggle with things are much less likely to act in horrific ways. What else you got? I think it's beautiful that the, (laughs) what you're talking about with question your own beliefs, then, then makes it easier to appreciate the, the struggle of someone else and, and their beliefs and realizing that we are all struggling with, with these beliefs and we're, we're all ultimately looking for answers. Uh, Michael says, can universal morality exist? Sam Harris seems to think so, but reality shows otherwise. Well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I read the, the moral landscape, uh, and I don't know if he, what he's talking about is, is a universal morality. More so, he's talking about a landscape of of peaks and valleys, moral peaks and moral valleys. What are your thoughts on on this? Do you want to take it? <laughs> no. Okay. You're the guest, man. I would love to hear what you think about it. Oh, I see. The guest gets the hot Yeah. Um, I have a very unpopular uh, view on this. Maybe we'll end on something else, but here's the, here's the view. <laughs> the view is, is that morality starts off as a means of outcompeting other tribes. So if you have a moral tribe where like you don't screw each other over, you're going to be better able to form a battalion that can fight effectively. You know, like we no nobody gets left on the battlefield, and you know we have to take care of each other. I've got your back. If you ha- if you can make that stuff work, you have a competitive advantage as a society over the society that's like induced to screw each other over. You ever notice these re- reality uh, competition shows? And they have the contestants, and they they do interviews with them, and. I don't really watch any of these, but I just like the interviews because the person says always, I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> I'm here to win, yeah. you know? And it's like, okay, so it's corporate America telling us to stab each other in the back, right? Well, no thank you because that's not how we beat the Japanese and the Germans in World War II. Mm-hmm. We, we have a culture and we have a belief in each other and all of, we're being induced 
to hate each other all the time, to hmm. outgroup. And so my belief is that morality begins as a competitive weapon between societies. Hmm. Now the really interesting question is, can we make the jump to universal morality and start to turn non-sentient things into the enemy? So for example, is our climate uh, problem now the enemy? Like our own need uh, for economic growth, is that become the enemy? Right. Or um, is uh, ultranationalism our enemy universally? And can, you know, are nuclear weapons the enemy? So none of those things really make sense as an enemy. It's like declaring the war on cancer. Cancer isn't something you can have a war on. So at the first level, it's like the war on drugs, the war on cancer, all that stuff is stupid. Mm -hmm. But weirdly, one level above that, it's actually the right idea because it's very hard to get people out of bed for things that aren't a war. Right, and so in order to do that, you have to hack, anthropomorphize. Exactly, you have to hack your own psychology that was built over millennia. And so universal morality is a completely unproven thing. It probably doesn't exist. If we can't figure out how to do it, we may be toast. So it's a really interesting problem. Mm. Can we create universal morality when morality was built out of non-universality, mm. right? It's a really depressing, inspiring, horrible, wonderful question, whoever asked that. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll end with this one. Does Eric agree that attempts at societal purity have to do with creating order? If yes, could the problem be that man-made order is in direct opposition to the paradox we find ourselves in? I.e., who wrote this? Jordan Peterson's memes? Um, <laughs> I.e., the natural order of the flow between chaos and structure in the world around us. I literally don't know what this question well, means. Well, let's try something different then. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're going to take this back from the audience. <laughs> Sorry, um, Crichton. I, want <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say something about, about your situation with your father. Um, okay. there was a great sculpture and I keep talking about this if you apologize if any of you have heard me on this before at the Burning Man Festival that captured people's imaginations it was two wireframe adults that were seated back to back hunched over obviously evoking the idea that they were having an argument they couldn't see each other they couldn't make a heart to heart connection and inside there are these two beautiful children who are touching each other through the wireframe. And it just is inspiring. Like, isn't this beautiful that the two children inside of these wireframe adults who can't get along are actually deeply in love with each other? Mm -hmm. All right. That sculpture has a problem because it masks a different possibility, which is that the children are at war and the adults are getting along. And that you have to take care of the child and we talk about inner children, and I hate the language. What it really is is a developmental state that's been neglected. Mm. So if there's one thing I can push out, it's taking the situation that you have with your father and asking, is there anything that you, as your adult, can give to your father's developmental child that didn't get met, right? Like it, it didn't yeah. advance to the point where it could see you for the adult that you are, the love that you have for your wife, you know? And I don't mean to tell you what you should and shouldn't do, but you could consider, for example, 
would it matter to my father? Could I reach my father's child, if not his adult, with a piece of paper from the government? Could I reach my father's child mm-hmm. by telling him all the things I got out of Jehovah's Witnesses that I still carry with me to this day? Mm. Is there anything that you possess as the adult to take care of the parent parental developmental stage that we call the inner child that got wounded? Yeah. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It's a great question. And I love looking at it through different lenses, especially if people who have... I mean, the first you heard about the relationship I have with my dad is right now. Yeah. So, no, I really appreciate the perspective. The the way... Well, but I think a lot of us are going through yeah. exactly this because the developmental environment is changing violently. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm the last generation that knows what life before the internet was like in childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that it's very hard for us to understand each other's experiences. And... Mm-hmm. The number of parent-child relationships that I see that are in tatters at the moment, and we, ha- we aren't putting it together with how much things are changing and how the information bubbles are working and what we mm-hmm. take to be true. Um, I would just highly advise looking through your own inventory and not seeing your father as your father, mm-hmm. and seeing your father as a child that you, having a child that you need to parent that somehow got wounded along the way is the best piece of advice I can give, not knowing your situation because we're they're all different, but just yeah. that was the starting point for me in some difficulty that it had never occurred to me that I needed to be the adult. Yeah, no, I, <clears throat> I love that. And I'm gonna have to dig into that because I don't have an answer off the top of my head how to reach his inner child, but I think it's a great approach. Because, oh, I was just going to say, I mean, and just help me maybe unpack this or look at it a little bit differently, Eric. Right now, the way I view it is my dad is like, I will have a relationship with you if you wear red shirts. You have to only wear a red shirt from now on. Now, if it was just a red shirt, I'd be like, okay, dad, I'll wear a red shirt. I will totally do that. But the red shirt for him is I have to belong to an organization that excludes many people that, um, really is just it just it misleads a lot of people unintentionally but it does and i am i refuse to exclude myself from the world in the way that that organization excludes itself how can i look at that differently well just riffing with you um i guess the way i would see it is first of all can you look for a hypocrisy in yourself that mirrors your father's developmental state Mm -hmm. you know for example a lot of my friends who are Democrats won't talk to Republicans. They say Republicans are selfish. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's pretty interesting because there's a fair number of Republicans that I'm pretty sure aren't selfish. Um, yeah. So it's helpful to look for the same craziness in ourselves. And, you know, I have a, a fair amount of this, I, I certainly have that anti country club Republican prejudice in me and my adopted uncle is definitely a country club Republican, one of the most generous, wonderful people. And I have a completely hypocritical view. I I view him as the kind of guy who would exclude me from his country club because of my last name. Mm. And it just shows that I'm still not getting that right because I can carry that, that issue. So I would say, okay, first of all, can you put on a red shirt sometimes 
mm-hmm. to let him know, hey, it's not that I don't want to. It's not that I'm I'm not throwing this back in your face, mm-hmm. right? Very often religions catch us as a second developmental environment where everything has gone wrong. How mm-hmm. many people have you know like been murderers or sold their kids into prostitution or done terrible, terrible things? Find religion, right? And religion gives them a way back. So I think it's really important to understand what the red shirt represents underneath it. Yeah. And like understand also that your father is running a universal program. Mm-hmm. The Jehovah's Witnesses are not small in number and right. they're very devout. And you have to, to sort of say, you know, my father isn't fully my father. My father is in part a computer running a program. Hmm. What programs am I running like that? Yeah. Like, why do I feel the need to put my hand over my heart and stand up at a sporting event and sing the song that goes for like an octave and a, ha- a fifth range and I can't hit that land of the free? Mm. I don't know, but I have to stand. No. I have to try it. Yeah. You know, and that's very much yeah. like an automated behavior having to do with belonging. And what you really don't like about that community mm. is how intolerant it is of decent people outside. Yeah. I don't have an answer for that, but my my best guess is model the adult behavior you wish to see in the wounded child that is your father's arrested state. That's good, man. Mm. Yeah. Eric, I want to thank you, man. I, I think you're, uh, I'm really grateful that you have become a public person and that you have a podcast. I want to encourage people to check out the portal. I want to encourage them to follow you on Twitter, especially if uh, Scott asks. You can dumb down your tweets occasionally for us. <laughs> um, uh, Eric R. Weinstein is his Twitter handle. Is there anywhere else I should send folks to to see you? Well, um, yes, on Instagram. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm a part-time Instagram. Oh, well, we have a ton of Instagram followers. Uh, Jess, if you're listening to this, let's let's get Eric. Let's, uh, let's, let's give him some love on Instagram. Uh, Jess handles all of our, our social media. But, but the Portal podcast is where I'm experimenting with, and I should just, can I, can I say what the podcast is about? Let's talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it's about escape from these things that we're trapped in. So very often people view me as like argumentative, but what I'm really doing is trying to ask, well, what is the unexplored answer that I can best give? Not that the explored answers are wrong, but very often we're still trapped after we hear all the the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. And so in part, the portal is the search for escapes from wherever we're trapped uh, as a society, as families, as uh, members of different competing groups uh, politically. Um, so the key thing is rejecting the frames you've been handed in favor of trying to build frames that come from people I see as having broken out of standard paradigms, whether that's Navy SEALs or comedians or rabbis uh, or billionaires, or the last one I did was with a um, SS officer's granddaughter who's trying to purge her family tree of some of the denial in order to build a, a more beautiful family tree uh, and do the hard work of repair. So um, that's what I'm really excited about, and I'm going to try to do some really crazy stuff 
coming up. In some sense, the portal uh, hasn't even started as of early November. These are just test interviews with beautiful people who happen to want to sit down with me to establish that we can do a normal podcast. Hmm. And the, the next hope is, is that we, uh, we hit the nitrous and uh, take off for the stratosphere. I think <laughs> you're, you're creating a, a sort of lattice work through which to see the world in a different way. And um, not accepting the sort of traditional institutions uh, point of view, which, by the way, it, it's weird because we have these left and right institutions, but they seem to be giving us the the same point of view. Uh, they're, they're focused in on the same sort of object, maybe with slightly more nuance on this side or that side. But the portal to me has been something that is appreciably different from that. And I just want to acknowledge you for doing something meaningful. That's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said uh, about the program. And I just want to say thanks. Yeah, Thanks for being here. You're awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, y'all. Love people, use things. And oh, happy holidays. Yeah. See you next time. See you, patrons. Thanks so much. The Minimalists.